0: Hi everyone. This is Shelby Lehman with O Effect AZ. I am here with Admiral Scott P. Moore. I am just very grateful that I um, have the opportunity to ask him some questions today. It's an absolute honor. Thank you, Scott, so much, Admiral Moore, for for being here. Um, I'm very thankful. For those of you who do not know yet who Admiral Moore is. Um, he's pretty much a big deal, to sum it up. He oversaw over 2,000 SEAL missions across the globe. Um, He's a retired Navy SEAL Rear Admiral. He um, is an expert on building no-fail teams. And um, my questions today are gonna be centered around leadership and building teams. So, Admiral Moore, can you please um, kind of just fill in the gaps and sum up your experience in the Navy SEALs?
1: Sure. First of all, hello, everybody. Um, so I, I actually graduated from the Air Force Academy. I grew up in Colorado. I was going to go fly in the Air Force. I come from a flying family. And uh, I went to the Air Force Academy. And then about a, after the first year, I learned about SEALs. And I was sort of mesmerized. And I went to a miniature course in the summertime for SEALs with a bunch of my classmates. And I came back from that thinking that's kind of what I wanted to do instead of fly. Um, and it took a long time to get the cross-commission. I did it while I was still at the academy. Finally earned it or got them to, to let me move into the Navy upon graduation, and uh, it was hard to do because I was actually pilot qualified, and um, the Air Force was going to lose a potential pilot, which was why it was so hard to do. Others who have done it were not, were not pilot qualified. They were going to be non-flyers, and so the Air Force was losing – a less critical position to fill, I'll put it that way. So when I got that, I took a 30 day vacation <clears throat> and um, went right into still training. So my entry into the Navy was the first day of still training. Okay. And um, I remember that day cause I had a classmate of mine from air force. We both went in there and there's, there's you know, there's Naval Academy guys. There's a whole lot of Navy sailors in our class, 120 guys and the instructors really do their best from the beginning to get as many people to quit. And, uh, you know, I came from a, a life of fun adversity with, with sports and a brother who would pick on me. So this was really nothing, but they made us hang from a pull-up bar and sing the air force song while everybody else was in the push up position of our class. And every time we screwed up the verse, they made us start over. And so, Our guys, we were hanging on the pull-up bar, and we were falling off, and our guys were in the push-up position for over an hour, and that was welcome to the Navy, and it was, every day was like that, not just on us, on everybody. It was fun. I look at it it as fun. You don't remember the bad stuff, but that was our still training. I think we started with 120 guys. We probably finished with somewhere around 30 of that original class, and 15 or 20 more guys rolled into our class because they had been injured and were, were held back for about two months. So um, and I did my first SEAL team on the West Coast. There's East Coast and West East Coast SIL teams. I
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, did two years there, went to language training, and then went to the East Coast because it was a team that specialized in mountain and Arctic warfare. And back then it was really the Cold War we were going into. We were in, and that was targets in Russia, and so we never did those but we certainly trained at those and they were cold targets and that's what we did and we trained all the time on skis and in cold water and in ice and uh, coming from colorado being a skier big time that's what i liked and we did that for a long time and then i went over to our team that specialized in counterterrorism. <clears throat> and that team has become quite famous and as an officer you leave teams a lot. The, the leadership positions in the in the Navy and all the service, by the way, Marines, Air Force, and Army leaders rotate out of their leadership positions every two years. And most designated leaders are what's called officers, commissioned officers. Quite often, people look at that as the, as they're the college graduates and the enlisted guys, which make 90% of the force in all forces: Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. Doesn't matter if you're a SEAL or not. 90% are enlisted and most people think that the enlisted are the non-college graduates and the officers are the college graduates. It's not true. In all services, there's, en- there's enlisted guys that have gone to college. They just didn't get get a commission either because they couldn't get a commission for some reason. They didn't go to ROTC or they didn't go to a service academy or they couldn't get a slot. Or in the SEALs, which we have 50 or 55% of our enlisted guys have degrees. Most of them don't want a commission because they want to be an enlisted guy because they believe that the officers have no fun and the enlisted guys are the ones doing it. I was an officer who came right in, in charge of a eight man seal squad in a 16 man platoon was number two guy. And that's the way it works in the Navy is they put you in these positions right off the bat where you're in charge of guys who probably have more experience than you. And it becomes a leadership challenge immediately. And I realize I'm talking a lot, and I'm going to go ahead and take the opportunity to continue here if you don't if, if you <laughs> no, mind. So here's the deal. When you go into the Navy, and just like in the Air Force, I learned at the Academy, people say when you first go into your first job, you're going to be in charge of a lot of people who have a lot more experience than you. And they tell you to listen to your top enlisted guy. In the Navy, that's called the chief, the chief petty officer. He usually has 12 to 14 years in. And they just kept telling me, listen to your chief, listen to your chief. And the chief that I had in my platoon was a great, fun Highly athletic, jovial guy, easy to like, and full of experience. And I just listened to him. And I'd say, "What do you think we what do you think we should do?" And he'd say, "Here's what we ought to do." And as soon as I listened to him, he realized I respected his experience, and our relationship immediately developed. And that was key: having a really significant, good relationship with your coworker who has more experience than you do, and knows that you value his experience. And so that began the, the journey, my journey in the Navy SEALs, which was. Very positive. I had, I had very positive leadership experiences. So here's the thing I remember. When you go, I went to a service academy. When you graduate from the service academy, Army, Navy, or Air Force, you owe five years at least. Sometimes it's six. depends on what year it is. And at, so you can't get out for those years. And it's simply because it's the way the military wants to recoup. It's an investment. And so and it makes a lot of sense. And so they have a lot of folks that get out after those years. There's a lot of guys, some pretty famous guys, I imagine Jimmy Carter, all these guys that got out after their five or six years in the service, and it's all very good time in the service, and they and they did their duty. So after five years, I started thinking about getting out, and I kept, and I was in these different leadership positions, and they moved, and every two years they moved it, and because I was succeeding, and I had good units, and it wasn't really my success, it was the success of my team. And quite often it was the success of my guys and their performance that made me look good. And ultimately, I kept enjoying my leadership roles. So I would be thinking about getting out, but I would accept the next role. I had several things on the outside I wanted to do and I just stayed in. And so I was in for 30 years and I was getting out for 25. And the reason I stayed in was because of the incredible fulfillment I had from my leadership positions. And it wasn't really my individual performance at all. It was the team performance and the fact that we as a team learned how to function incredibly high at a high level, should I say at the highest expectations under the highest stressful situations. And we still perform. And so I just had this amazing fulfillment and that's what kept me in for 30 years. Um, I, I was stationed on both coasts of the United States. I deployed, Throughout the Pacific, quite often the thing I remember in the military, um, I was already in for 18 years when 9-11 happened. So most of the stuff I was doing when I was younger was not combat. It was actually training foreigners to be like us. So I did a lot with the Koreans, with the Thais, with the Filipinos, with the Australians. Did a whole lot on the East Coast with the Brits, the Norwegians, the Germans, the Italians, the French. Um, And, and, you know, in some of those cases, especially in Europe, you would learn from those guys. In the other cases, you taught them more than than you got back from them. Um, Developed incredible friendships with the Brits, the Australians, who I consider our peers. And I saw these guys years later on the battlefield. So went to different assignments. Also had, in the middle of my career later on, an HR job, which means I was responsible for assigning every other SEAL below me which was about 250 Every they still officer leader and knew his next position. So after about a year, you realize you're, you're someone's best friend or someone's worst enemy because you, you've sent them somewhere they loved or they hated. And you learn more about their wives, their kids and their dogs. than you ever wanted to know, um, which, which became excuses. And they talk about, you spend more time, spend 90% of your time with the bottom 10% of your people. That's very, very true because I, the top performers, I hardly ever talked to because their performance was automatically a qualification for the next higher, great leadership position. It was all the other guys I had to figure out a job for. So, and then I went on to command. I commanded several times at, at the commanding officer level. Um, and then I went on to work with some foreigners. I was stationed in Pakistan for a year working with, with, with the top two leaders of the Pakistan military, which was very intriguing. I worked in the White House after my top command, working in the National Security Council under uh, the National Security Advisor. And uh, and this was during President Obama, the guy I relieved really was with during President Bush and Obama. And then I went over to the Pentagon and was the counterterrorism team leader in a, in a 40-man special operations office that provided briefings to Admiral Mullen. And he and I would generally go over to the White House three or four times a week to get permissions to execute different special operation missions. And I concluded with being the number two guy that's called the deputy commander of the Naval Special Warfare Command in Coronado, California, which is really a about an 8,000-person force. And, and that's um, probably only about 2,500 SEALs out of that. The rest are other Navy specialties. And you have all kinds of stuff, including facilities, training, organizing training and equipping your force. Right. So it's not really a tactical job, but it's more of a giant management role and keeping the seals very relevant and equipped for the next fight. And, um, last thing I'll say is when I came in, nobody really knew what a seal was. People, including my, my grandmother would ask me, what's that? (laughs) And, uh, we didn't, we did not have the notoriety until after nine 11. That's both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say it's more bad and um, just because you can't go anywhere nowadays and everyone knows where the Navy seal is it's a little just dis- distracting and also if you wonder what type of guy came in in the 80s and 90s under the auspices of who knows what that is and you know there, yeah we had advertisements we had videos in the Navy in the Navy recruitment system and that's what brought guys in in the Navy from other from ships and things like that um, and nowadays you have a lot of notoriety and so it's you know it may bring it up a certain sector of society that's looking to for the same notoriety that it offers, which is a distraction. Because generally we're, we're trying not to be anybody out there notable. We're trying to actually remain remain in the shadows. And, and the last thing I'll say is we're really not about the guy. We're about the team. And when people generally in my generation and even later generations, uh, people would ask you where, you know, Where did you work? You say I was in the teams. You don't say I was a seal. You say I was in the teams. And we are very much, even nowadays, really more about the team than we are the individual. And I'll leave it with that because that's already getting into a lot of your questions.
0: (laughs) Thank you, thank you, Admiral Moore. Well, I appreciate such a thorough description of your history. um, Part of the Navy SEAL teams. There's a statement here um, that I grabbed from the Navy website um and it says that you've commanded at every level of naval special warfare so that's true
1: right that's right, let me just let me just tell what that means so the, the, the basic food group of a Navy SEAL team mm-hmm. is what's called a SEAL platoon okay? okay there are generally between 16 and 21 guys in a SEAL platoon and that's the that's the group that generally mm-hmm would go do any kind of mission. Okay. Um, and quite often we would actually double that. You put two platoons together and you make a SIL troop. It's still two different SIL platoons into a troop. You have a troop commander, you have two different SIL platoon commanders below them and they have a SIL platoon. And um so I had and then there's assistant platoon commander. So I had the assistant job, I had the platoon commander job, I had the troop commander job several times several times each so I had for example four or five different operational roles like that and then I was an opso where I had um, 12 of those SEAL platoons under me and then I was a commanding officer where I had same thing and then I was a squadron commander different different force at our national mission force where we had 40 to 50 guys in that squadron so each time they generally increase the number of guys you're in charge of and then they pull you out of that team and put you in charge of many teams. So you become, over the years of doing this, really, really good at leading not only individuals. You should become. It doesn't mean everyone has. We see all different shapes and sizes of leaders.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I looked at it. To me, to me, my experience was it was basically a, lib- a leadership laboratory because you learned out of many different venues, many different times, through iterations, and also watching your peer leaders of, the, of similar platoons next to you and the and the, the challenges they were going through the successes and failures they had and you built that into a library of how to do it for yourself um, it's amazing how still some guys did not necessarily succeed after all that time that they had like i had and others did succeed and so um, a lot of that comes down to how much open-mindedness you have to actually become a better leader uh, that's when you get into the concepts of emotional intelligence, um, openness, willingness to actually improve and listen and learn. And a lot of that the academic world really, really, really talks about nowadays more than ever. Um, and it's interesting. It's almost like they think they're new concepts. These are concepts that we experienced all the time, but now I, I learn what it's called. Mm-hmm. But. Still, it, the openness to improve and to listen and to learn and to adapt to your people, not, not make them adapt to you, are really key milestones of what made some of the guys successful and others not so successful.
0: Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a very valuable um, insight for leaders, um, being open, listening and learning and adapting to the people instead of expecting them to always adapt to you. Um, right. All right, so let's jump into some of the questions that I have. Um, the first one you you kind of touched on in the very beginning um, in terms of you starting in the Air Force, but growing up, did you always think that you would end up in the military? I know you said that you you weren't really focused on being in the military, right? You had all the other aspirations.
1: Yeah, I grew up in, in Colorado, I was into skiing, I was into climbing, I was playing hockey, I was I wasn't really a, a good student. I was kind of footloose and fancy free, and then, then it became time. And I think the key, key element of my life is I went to outward bound. And oh. um, I actually went there to climb, and it really is not a climbing school.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I did learn how to climb. It's more of an outdoor leadership school, and where you actually challenge yourself. And at the end of it, my instructor said, okay, now the challenge is for you to go out and do something – decide what you want to do with your life and um and then i remember watching jets and it was sort of in my just in me and i looked at these you know i got accepted to the air force academy and also a bunch of other colorado universities and when i got that acceptance having known a whole lot about the air force been to a whole lot of different air force bases and events and the legacy of a great uncle that had an air force base named after him and a father who flew i just looked at that opportunity as something that I could always walk away from later on but it's something I probably would be dumb to pass up. So I so despite the opportunity to go be a ski bum <laughs> at Fort Lewis at Fort <laughs> Lewis College where Fort all my friends went
0: Fort Leisure yeah.
1: Yep, where all my buddies went. Uh, and so I got told my daughters go where I wish I had gone. But um, but I decided to go to the academy. And so, you know, do I, You know, yeah, that's how I went. Into, so, no, I, I was not thinking military at all. But I think it was in my blood. But it doesn't, you know, my brother didn't go to the military. My sister didn't go to the military. And uh, and I know many people, SEAL teammates of mine who have kids, none of them go into the military. So I don't think, you know, don't ask me why I did. I, I, there's a lot of fl- a lot of jets flying around my house where I grew up in Colorado Springs. I'd see them. But I think when I had, you know, I, I just kind of winged it and said, I'll fly there. And I got in, and uh, once I realized that, I just thought to myself, I'd be really stupid to not accept it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I did. Awesome.
1: Nowadays, I, do I regret it? I could have been like the best skier bum ever. Because <laughs> I actually worked at Crested Butte Colorado, between high school and college for a year. Oh, so I okay. know what that's like. But but ultimately, I knew I had to – kind of like my outward bound guy said, you got to decide if you're going to do something with your life. And that's why I did it.
0: Uh-huh. Awesome. I would think too that a childhood growing up in Colorado and being as outdoorsy and adventurous as it sounds like you were, you also become comfortable with going outside your your um, with not being comfortable with testing your personal limits, um, and that probably served you very well too in your career, with being willing to do that.
1: Yeah, I, but I think uh, keep in mind there's a whole lot of people that grew up in Colorado that never even go in the outdoors. All right. Yeah. Um, You know, probably millions that don't consider themselves skiers or hikers or climbers. So I I think it's still in the the individual DNA. But but since you're hitting that topic, kind of uh, adversity or challenging, I would tell you this. I think the key to anyone who is going to want to perform at a higher level, especially in leadership, and be able to adapt and really respond and really deal with changing situations and challenges. The key to that is embracing adversity all the time, like hard school, hard, hard courses, hard physical workouts, hard sports. Um, And and a lot of people back away. Those who accept that challenge, even if you're not doing well, eventually you become quite used to it. That's kind of like the service academies. They do the same thing. They put you in an adverse situation. There's pressure there's pressure from military discipline. There's pressure from academics. There's pressure from forced sports after a while. It doesn't even seem like pressure. It's normal. That's why someone like me going either still training, you know, my pressure before even the Academy came from my brother, you know, a year older than me and his friends. And it also came from playing sports in high school and things like that. So after a while, some people thought it was pressure. I thought it was sort of fun because I'd seen worse pressure and, you know, like SEAL instructors yell at me. I'd kind of look at them and say, is that the best you got? I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but I would think that. And so my point is pressure prepares you for everything in life.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: if I could make one recommendation for, for a lifestyle impact, it is embrace adversity and challenges, which will make you stronger and better. And pretty soon you won't even look at it as adversity. It'll become your new norm.
0: Mm-hmm. And that,
1: that, is in, that is in fitness. That is in everything. Right, taking the easy way out, you're on a downhill slope. If you take the hard way, you're on an uphill slope your entire life of growth.
0: Awesome, I love that. Um, you know pretty much what you just said, embracing adversity, is that's a common theme too that I'm hearing, um, and probably a lot of the listeners too to this have heard from Tony Robbins and some of the greatest motivational speakers. Um, Always um, got a version of that too. So that's awesome. Um, All right. So the next question is you know, we talked about how you served in every leadership position and you've oversaw over 2,000 SEAL teams or SEAL missions across the world. Can you run us through a circumstance that was a no fail scenario? And maybe. just to reiterate, you know, for the people who've seen the movie Captain Phillips, that negotiator role, um, it wasn't actually called that, um, but you were that real-life person, that negotiator. Um, was that a no-fail scenario, and can you kind of run us through what that was actually like in real life?
1: Yes, let's hit the title of no-fail here, because, um, you know, some people out there may think that every SEAL mission, is—you you cannot fail. And that is somewhat inaccurate. Let me explain the majority of missions you're doing, first of all, are not even combat. They're training your counterparts and that who knows if you're ever even going to find a level of success because your counterparts could be at the D level. Okay. Um, you think about some of these foreigners who hardly speak English and they hardly have any fitness and it's, um, incredible challenge on in getting them to even do the right exercise are moving in the right direction so you're you're trying to move from a D to a C minus maybe okay so certainly not no fail there but so that's probably more than half if not more than that of what you do as a as a special operations guy and keep in mind when i say that there's other people in the special operations that's a that's a part of the military which includes army navy air force and marines seals are only part of it right and i can i, I consider and say seals are absolutely the best And the reason I won't say that is because I have a lot of Green Beret friends and Rangers friends, and it's not that I'm afraid of them beating me up. It's actually – it's more that I respect them and know that if I say that, they're going to look at me and say, I can't believe you said that. And they're not going to say, we're the best, but it just sounds ridiculous in our world because there's so many guys that are all really good in their own way.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: sometimes we all have very similar missions, and sometimes they'll be different. But probably the biggest difference – for guys like me would be a SEAL is really supposed to be the expert at missions on, under, or from the sea. Otherwise, there's a whole lot of similarities and a lot of the techniques involved. But when we say no fail, and once again I'm gonna focus on the on the on the can fail, the majority of missions in combat are called capture or kill. We're going after bad guys, really after the leaders of these different groups, because And the reason we go after the leaders versus why the conventional army or the conventional marines generally go after the masses of their fighters is because we have a unique ability to find the leaders. Probably we have direct ownership of certain drones. We have probably even uh, potentially better or faster or more advanced helicopters. We can get in there at night. We can go do precision things. We may have a little bit of an older age of us, 30, 35 years old, group of guys, comes with that more experience, more tactical prowess, faster at night, more precision. And so that's why we go after the, the highest level guys. Well, the highest level guys can get away, and they have, on a capture-kill mission. They can get, they, we can find out they were never there. They, get, they hear us coming, they run away. We get in a gun battle, and somehow one slips out the back door. We have had that happen many times. So we have generally failed a lot of those. Um, We have also occasionally decided not to hit the target because we realized, Hey, there's women and children throughout this thing and let's just back off and figure out another way to come in there or or get, uh, get other forces in the daytime to surround it and just talk to them and get the, you know, something like that. So, so you could say generally we have not accomplished some of those missions. Dozens. I've been hundreds of times. So, so we could overuse the term "no fail," but I, when I look at "no fail," I think of the couple. I think of the most important missions in the world. We could say that Bin Laden was a no fail mission because we were doing this targeted incursion into a foreign country that is not that we were not at war with. We were not at war with Pakistan. Okay, we're at war in Afghanistan. Um, we're also going after our nation's top enemy, and we're being directed by our president. To fail that would put a stain on the president and the country. Okay. It would you know, for for our peers, they would say, Wow, that's horrible. To our enemies, they would actually enjoy that failure. And it would be it would be publicized. Okay. For hostage rescues, way different than a capture kill. We're going after an American or a peer friend. It could be a Brit it could be an Afghani officer. It could be a US aid worker. We've done it dozens of times lately. In the first half of my career, we hardly ever did it, but we were trained to do it. The difference is, first of all, in a no-fail mission, it takes a, a top performance because on a hostage rescue, you have to get there without the enemy knowing it. It's called the element of surprise. On a capture kill, quite often the enemy learned you were coming in, and we still beat the enemy. On a hostage rescue, you don't really beat the enemy because the enemy is going to kill the hostage. So you failed the mission even if you kill all the enemy. The goal is to rescue the hostage alive, and sometimes it's no matter the cost to us, we've lost guys doing it, having rescued American citizens, but we still call that a successful mission. That's a no fail mission. You don't want to let that individual's family down, even though you never met them and you wish they had never gone into that country, such as these aid workers. Mm -hmm. Or the other thing is the reason you're told to go is from the president. Yeah, we can do hostage rescues in war zones without even – we're not even thinking about it. We'll just go. We still don't want to fail because, because we're trying to rescue an American citizen. But on a mission such as Captain Phillips or some of these others like Jessica Buchanan, where the force was authorized and the president's watching, you don't want to let him down. You don't want to let the family down. So there's a lot of pressure. Um, for Phillips, sure, we, were, we, were, we knew we had to go. I was the commanding officer of the, of the organization that is tasked with maritime counterterrorism. And I knew that we had to go even if we weren't going to be used, we had to be there in the event that killing Richard was imminent. And the whole goal is to keep that American hostage alive. Keep in mind, you have video of this guy on CNN in the, in the lifeboat. America's watching this. The president's now engaged. It's on TV. And he has a U.S. force over there. We cannot fail. Now, what that means to me people ask me if I had a lot of pressure. I, it odd that I, I really remember flying overseas in the C-17 So we parachuted our whole force and, a, and several boats. And I had several bosses keep this in mind. Uh, one, my main boss was sitting in Afghanistan and as soon as I got on that ship, I'm talking to him and he's in charge and he, he's, he's running the mission until he lets me have the authority do something if it's an emergency. Otherwise, we're walking through it methodically to get these guys to give up. And that was our whole goal. But, but, but was I pressured or did I feel pressure? And this is the funny thing. This is around my twenty-sixth, 27th year in the military, maybe a little less, maybe 25. I had grown up under pressure, under adversity, and watched my bosses have responsibilities like this and slowly earned these levels of responsibility myself. And as you grow and mature as a leader, pretty soon you just get a, you adapt to a, the higher level of pressure. So I understood hundred percent that I was going to be the guy ultimately responsible either way. And it was going to be based upon either the situation or the actions of my men. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the situation I had no control over and the actions of my men, I really could not I could I could dictate or influence, but I really could not shape their performance. Any shaping of their performance had to already occur over the years, and that is through the culture of the, command, of the organization and the leadership and the team and getting commitment from the guys, and it, it involves a whole lot of things like loyalty and trust. And those things are much more important than the individual shooter capability. Because after a while, people say, are your snipers your best shots? I said, no, they're just usually the guys who don't work well with others so we put them out in small teams and i'm laughing I'm laughing about that because the snipers will get mad me hearing that i'm I'm really joking, but so there's guys who there's guys who have been snipers and they came back into the assault team because they like making they like clearing houses, and so we have a lot of incredible marksmen okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but so and this was not necessarily a sniper mission that was just a potential tool that we could use in the end we use that versus several other capabilities we had Um, but I was not pressured and the reason why was because I knew I had the best guys in the world on the plane with me going over and I knew that if anybody can do it we could and yet I still knew success is not ever guaranteed you can have bad luck or whatever and so I wasn't cocky I wasn't arrogant about it but I absolutely knew that 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 I am I have as good a team as there is and so it actually gave me comfort and I knew that we would actually we would deal with it and figure it out. Awesome. So we did. And ultimately, and I will tell you something else. And a very good team. This was a very good team, and I had four of these teams. I didn't know which team was going with me. I had, a, I had a team back in Virginia Beach. I had just come back from Afghanistan for Easter vacation, which I ended up diverting off of and sent my family to Colorado to go skiing, and they knew what was going on.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I went over with this team that was on that was local, ready to go anywhere in the world. And I I recalled, and we went and the truth is I didn't know which team that I didn't know at that time that I recalled this team, which team I had on call because of the pace of operations overseas. I was overseas most of the time. I didn't keep track of who I had. So it could have been one of four different 50 man teams and it would not have mattered. That tells you how much confidence I had in the culture of the organization that I knew that no matter who it was, we are driven to perform at the highest level on these no-fail missions. And that's that's really, you know, that, that says it all right there, that, that it's the culture that drives the performance. So we got overseas, and ultimately, the movie is relatively inaccurate, but ultimately, I would tell you, in the end, I didn't dictate. You know, if you look at the movie, I didn't say, get the snipers. The truth of it is, when I looked at what the situation had 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 broken down into, I knew we had to take an action. And the snipers provided a solution that I said, do it. Okay. I didn't say do this. They came to me and said, Hey boss, we can do this right now. I said, Roger, because we were looking at two other things to do as well. And I said, Roger, use that go. And so that's an example of having an organization that empowers guys to develop the most advanced and girls, the most advanced capabilities, no matter if it's a business or whatever, and then they, they feel empowered and they provide the solution. That's when you have your highest performing organizations.
0: Awesome. I love, I love the quote, it's the culture that drives the performance. Absolutely. Um, so flying over in that C-17, is there anything that you would tell yourself mentally beforehand, kind of like a mantra, or is it really just kind of just getting prepped for the individual scenario that you're about to go into? Or is there, is there something that is consistent that you tell yourself before you, you go into these hostage scenarios?
1: Yeah, just basically, um, you know, those, those are the type of missions that most guys really, really want. In my younger days, I would have, I, you know, I didn't do those. We certainly got ready for those. And I would have, you know, that's like going into the Stanley Cup playoff, final, game seven. With, against, a, against a team that you know you're going to smoke, put it that way. Because game seven sounds like you have two equal teams, but the truth of it is we know that we're dominant. We know that. There's technology as well, but we also know – but we don't take it for granted, right? Because you never know. Enemy always gets a punch in now and then, and Arlington Cemetery shows that for us. Um, but generally we dominate, and we could be cocky about it. That's one of the things I spent a lot of time in my older days, in my later days as, as a SEAL senior leader was trying to mellow out our guys on on uh their overconfidence and part of that is the notoriety and after a while i was like hey guys you know you're only here's the key you're only as good as your next mission no matter who you are and so get over yourself great job but get over yourself that's what i said when i came back from captain philip hey guys awesome this this, this success has actually belonged to to many 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 more hundreds of people I, mean, I know I'm getting away from the thing is what I tell myself and I'll just answer that real quick. What I tell myself is just lead, just lead this, but just lead means also I'm not the guy that's going to pull the trigger. I'd love to be the guy. Depends what it is, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm there to lead it. So just lead it. And the truth of it is if you lead the right way and basically it's like watering a fast growing garden, you have people around you that are going to provide the solution, empower them, and generally you will probably have needed to already empower them and just trust them. And in those cases, when we got there, honest to God, the time to lead was months and years before that, the time to support your guys was then cause they're ready to go. And, but I'm a big guy that says just lead. And, and uh, no matter what position you're in, if you have people that work for you, you can call it management. But you're but you're you're missing the point. Yeah, you may have to manage schedules and programs and things like that. But uh, that they're doing. But ultimately, leadership is a personal approach. And it's I believe in the art of leadership. The science of leadership is as you give orders and you direct it and you turn and walk away, or you just say, "Here's what we're doing, get it done," and you'll get so much less out of your force or out of your company or out of your organization than if you actually empower and use artful techniques. And so for me, all he would do is, honest to God, if I had something like that, a a, a hostage rescue, I was telling myself it was deal with it, deal with it. And I was telling my guys, I once had a very, very great mentor who was, um, he was killed in Afghanistan, um, a top enlisted SEAL, but his mantra that he used to laugh and tell me was, hey, life's a bitch deal with it and kick some butt. And, and, and generally, that's what it's all about as a leader. You just got to deal with it and realize life is not always fun and games. It's, you know, that's why in our world, most of these guys end up being becoming great problem solvers because everything, generally, no matter what you're doing in business or anywhere else, it's full of these little problems. And mm-hmm. if you just simply take them one at a time and solve them, pretty soon it becomes routine, problem solving. Sometimes it's fun, even the hardest problems. And um, the other thing is embrace failure. So if something, wrong, if something goes wrong, you can get down on yourself and realize everybody fails. And the truth is I didn't learn any of my leadership techniques from success. I learned from failure and other people's failure. And, when you, and if you don't embrace failure and really sit down and really talk about it and learn from it, that means that you're accepting that as your standard. First of all, don't accept it. Learn from it and how do you improve. And, and that is a non-ending journey right there embracing failure taking the lessons learned and driving on and and success it's momentary don't don't get don't get too arrogant about it you know I, I, like i said great job guys now get over it because your most important mission is your next one and that's exactly what i said after captain phillips okay
0: thank you um your answers to these questions are just so good. i have never like I have not been prepped for the the answer you're about to give for any of these questions so far. Thank you so much for the thoroughness. Um, so my next question, it was going to be, what are the characteristics needed to be a part of a no fail team? But you've you've kind of already touched on that. So I kind of want to rephrase it to. What are some cur- so let, me,
1: let, me go over that. let me go over that real quick because there is something I didn't mention, okay? Okay. Because I will tell you this. And, and, if, and if you have a team, everyone is part of a team. Unless you are a standalone person who sits at, at your house in a computer, and that's what your job is every day, and there are those, and, I, and that's a pretty cool job, <laughs> right? Um, I don't know if I could do it for too long, but. Yeah, same. Other, otherwise, everyone has a workplace or they have a, a team or whatever. And so here's one of the biggest things I learned. Remember, I was probably, and I didn't, I talked about leadership roles turning over every two years. I didn't, I was in for 30 plus, so I didn't have 15 roles. I probably had 12 and they're all of different sizes and shapes. And some of them weren't all SEALs. And quite often they were part SEALs. Like an almost SEAL team, I had a commanding, a commanding officer job. That means I was the boss
2: mm-hmm.
1: of about a 200 man SEAL team on the East coast. Okay. And when I say 200 man, it's, that's a false as well because it was full of some women, but they were not SEALs. So what I'm saying is, okay, maybe 250 people in the command. Out of that, maybe 65 or maybe 80 SEALs. Okay. Okay. So besides that, the rest of people were non-SEAL Navy people, which included admin people, intelligence. These are Navy trained people, Navy intelligence experts. Navy operations, most of those are probably SEALs. Navy logistics, they're not SEALs. There's are different types of engineers and CBs, facilities, training, technology, you name it. So only about one-fifth of the organization is SEALs, and everyone thinks that's all we care about. So first of all, in most organizations, you care about the high-biz people, the flashy people, the people that really produce. In most organizations, that's probably sales. Okay, the people who make the sale. And I want to tell you One thing I've learned over the years from watching some of the best leaders i had is, first of all, you have to pay attention to everybody. Meaning meaning if you don't pay attention to your admin or your intel or your logistics or if it's product development, whatever it is, different organizations or companies, you're going to lose those people. Because then they realize they're not that relevant. The bosses don't care about them. And they're just going to roll because they get a better pay offer, okay? You have to somehow gain their loyalty. And it's real simple how you gain everyone's loyalty. You start caring about everyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, when I came back from a long pump overseas, about six, seven months, we had actually lost three or four guys in combat, it had been quite traumatic, we had had amazing success as well. But people back home had never seen those types of losses, and, that, and, that type of, and these were some very top leaders. And so I came back and I got the whole organization together, it's called a captain's call, it was a Navy captain in charge of, was the captain of the command, the Navy, you call that the skipper, we use a lot of nicknames from ships. I was a skipper. And so what we did was we, um, I had a captain's call and I, and, and my, my partner who was my enlisted advisor. said, what are you going to talk about? I, go, I don't know. So I went in and he said, you can't just wing it. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to fake it. And, and basically have them give me questions first and choose their questions. I go, I am going to wing it because I've done it for 25 years. And, and we both started laughing. So I walked out there and I just started talking about what we're doing overseas and why we are being called upon to go after the toughest enemies, which was simply because we had the highest skilled performers to do the precision location and operations. And then I talked about everything else we have going on worldwide for this, com- this command. And then I talked about what each department is doing from admin to intelligence to logistics and all those. Okay. When I got back to my office, I had three or four of these former chiefs that had worked for me. And now they were civilians at the command send me emails and said, Hey, you know, never before have we felt so, I think the whole command is more informed than ever, which is, you know, all all of them said, Hey, great job informing the command. But the fifth email was from a lady that I had known over the years that I'd come to that command like three or four times growing up my hardest roles there. Now I was in charge, but I hadn't always been in charge. Previously I'd been an operational leader at lower levels. She'd been there the whole time and she was the comptroller. And as a younger guy, she being the budget, budget, I'm sure I caused her a lot of pain. And I remember getting in arguments with her, fighting for more money, things like that. Or she's asking me questions on why we were spending money certain ways. So it wasn't always pleasant. So the first thing she said in her email was, Captain, you sure have matured. And it wasn't a compliment. But the second thing she said is, I want to tell you that I've never felt more confident in why I come to work because of what you just explained. And what's interesting is I didn't even talk about her or the budget. But what I did talk about is the priorities. And I said, hey, the priority is the guys going in front of the enemy, which happened to be, and they were in front of me, all all the operators, the SEALs. Mm -hmm. But I said, but keep in mind, I looked at them, I said, but you may be the highest priority, but do not abuse your position because everyone else is closely tied for second. And if their role doesn't occur, such as you don't get your paycheck at home, your wife can't make the mortgage payment, guess what she's doing? she's calling you about 10, about a couple hours before your mission. And next thing you know, you have this worry on your mind. That's the nature of Skype and comms now communications nowadays. I said, so if her, if their mission doesn't occur, it could be admin, could have been, if you don't have intelligence for the, for the objective or the target, you got problems. If you don't have facilities to train, if you don't have logistics, all that. And I said, if their mission doesn't occur. Then yours doesn't. So respect their position. Cause they're all closely tied right behind you for seconds. and, and, but her point was, you really updated me on why I come to work. I know exactly where I fit into the puzzle. And what I realized is people don't have to be the all-star performer. They don't have to be the number one priority. They just want to know how they, where their role fits in. And I think it's important for key leaders ultimately to to tell that to everybody periodically. If you want to have an organization that is tight and cohesive and people want to come to work, that doesn't just happen. This is what I would call loyalty. When you start caring about them. And caring about them means you communicate their importance to them periodically. But it also means you get to know what type of person they are offline. Like, hey, some people have cancer family members. Some people have problems. And somehow, you, you know, you have, you have family get-togethers. You do things like that. And you start getting to know your folks. Pretty soon, they start realizing you care about them. Then they, then they, they don't want to let you down. I call that loyalty.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: The other issue is trust, which is just as important. But let me finish the importance of of the individual, okay? I would tell you this. I would rather have an average SEAL performer who was an A-plus team player than have an A-plus SEAL performer who was a C team player, okay? I don't care if if the guy was the best shooter in the world. If he was basically incorrigible as a teammate, he is a distraction. His gain is not worth his pain. Okay. And so I could have a team of C plus B minus operators and I can, it could be a, a team because of the cohesiveness and just the DNA of that team where you could have a team full of a plus performers who had no cohesiveness. And I'm here to tell you, I've seen that before. And the team that can't work together, might as well be a D product, okay? So so those who are always looking on a high-performance team for the highest-performing individuals, I will tell you, I don't think that's as likely as getting the normal, just above-average individuals and making that team a high-performing team and then slowly improving the individual performance of them while they're already a good team, All right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I definitely see that because I played sports in college and we had some players yeah. that were fantastic and our coach could not figure out why we weren't winning games. Um, yeah.
1: You can see the same thing in the professional sports world as well. Right. It's more, it's all about them, not about us. Yeah. And um, yeah, but here, but i tell you, it takes, it takes insightful leaders to see that to screen that or to fix it. And sometimes, you got to weed the garden. I don't, it doesn't mean you have to kick them out, but we have these different group, we have group gatherings, such as the way I would describe it on a team is on a sports team. As you, you, I talked to a local lacrosse team here who's not doing too good. I tell them you must have these debriefs. When, even if you win or lose, get people in a room and go over what went good and what went bad. And, and when you start really hitting up some of these issues that are bugging you, if you let them bug you such as, Hey, let me, let me ask you this. You are on your own sheet of music. You're not caring about anybody but yourself. There's a point where you have to bring that stuff up. And what will happen is it's a self-cleaning oven, and the best organizations do not skip it. A self-cleaning oven, you bring up the heat in the room, and it burns out the particles. You, le- you keep it professional. What goes on in that room stays in that room, and you do not refrain from letting loose, okay? And you keep your ego at the door, ideally. And you bring up the things bugging you. The best teams don't miss that. They do it all the time, even to the, even, even friends will, will unleash on each other. Like, what was that about? How did you miss that? Why did you do that? And it may not be an individual's fault. It could be the coach's fault, or it could be a plan you came up with, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so ultimately, what you want is a remarkable team. And I'll tell you something about planning. I know I'm covering so many things. Planning no matter what you're planning for. There's a military saying that says, no plan survives the first shot. And I had a friend of mine say, I said, planning is crucial, but it's irrelevant. Think about that. Those are polar offices. Planning is crucial, but it's irrelevant. What he really means is you must go through the planning process always, but chances are you're not going to execute the plan. Mm. Okay. What he really is saying is the best planning involves planning for what could also go, go, go wrong and then have a plan for that. And that's how the best organizations do it. And so, so they basically are ready to respond. And it's how they respond naturally. They get so used to what if this happens, what if this happens, what if this happens. And the team that really does that all the time gets used to the what ifs, we call it. You're able to handle any situation whatsoever in your team. Then when you plan it and you've got the what ifs down, chances are you'll have it more in control and things will go smoothly. But the, but the one thing I want to drive home is this, is that point about the, the, the having a team full of B players versus a team full of A-plus players, okay? The real important quality there is, are they team players, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, with um, so the title company that I work at now, and I don't necessarily want to mention their company name so that our legal team doesn't get after me. Um, but, you know, we're trying to create a, A stronger culture of holding each other accountable Um, and what you said about you know turn the heat on in the oven and it cleans out the particles we've seen people who once you start holding them accountable they can't take and they go to another they they go to another company or they leave the industry altogether Um, but the people who are willing to be held accountable um, they stay and that definitely you know it's a it's a natural way of cleaning out the weeds
1: yeah so let me so let's think about this because it was me if it was me and let's say you brought me in
0: uh-huh. and
1: you said hey I want you to I want you to help figure out this I would actually start it off kind of slow and I would give a warning order and tell people hey just so you know we're going to start holding people a little more accountable it's not going to be drastic but just realize we're going to start reviewing performances and, and we're going to do it as a group and we may not say okay how's your performance but we're going to talk about the, the task at hand and how it went and if there's a, an individual performance that happened to drive failure, we probably will likely bring it up and just be prepared for that. Okay. And, and I would tell you, you're still going to have those people who can't handle that. And I think that's, it's just the way they were brought up.
2: Mm -hmm. They can't
1: handle. And it's part of, that's the other thing is, is it depends what your organization is, but if you want to have a really high performing organization, I still believe if you're really doing hardcore research on who you pull in, you want to, I, I do believe in diversity, but it's diversity of opinions, Okay? That's what it really, to me, that's what diversity is for me, diversity of opinions, not necessarily color or sex or all that, although sometimes you get differences of opinions because of that. So whatever it takes, yeah. you want diversity of opinions. But what i also tell you is I'd be looking for people who had generally backgrounds that, that challenged them, and that's why I think the best organizations are made up of people who played team sports. And the reason why is when you're young – I have a son right now who plays lacrosse and he's an average player. He has fun and he's always going through ups and downs. He's 13. So you see all kinds, of, you know, do you have a couple kids out there who are blazing it? You have some kids who look like they're learning it for the first day and they've been out there for years. And then you have the, the rest of the crowd, which is, he's kind of in there. He has good and bad. He has bloopers all the time and he has great throws all the time. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and
1: once in a while, someone will tell him that he sucks. And, and, and I looked at him and I said, I said, first, you know, how do you deal with that? I said, just tell him whatever, man. You know, But the point is, is this, he's going through this challenging mode of learning that basically, hey, you can't impress everybody, you've got your ups and downs. And, and I'm watching, and he's, the, he's an example of what I'm talking about. You watch people through team sports start developing more self-esteem and realize, one, they need to be reliable to their teammate.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: enough right there to drive them to perform. But two, they're going to mess up and people are going to give them a hard time. And pretty soon you just drive on. Uh and that's that's sort of a pressure and adversity and I think what you get with from team sports is you get people who are who have actually adapted and one they've they've learned that it's important to be reliable and two you still are going to screw up and how to deal with it people who haven't been through that type of adversity one I think it shocks them and they're the people who quit because they can't handle that Mm -hmm. Um, and two I'm not sure that they ever can handle being on a, a team and being really 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 an integral part of that team without being, you know, a real good team. I'll tell you right now, including the leader, a real good team doesn't talk about anybody. They talk about the team. And, and, when, and I was in charge of a bunch of those teams and it wasn't about me. And I don't think the team ever said, yeah, we're Scotty Moore's guys ever. They said, Hey, we're this, we're, we're this squadron, we're that squadron. We didn't bring up anybody in particular because we all thought we were equally important. And that's the key about a really good leader is a leader, really good leader recognizes that they only have one important role, and that is they have the final say. But they're not at all the most talent or the smartest. And sometimes they're really handing off their decision as well. They're handing it off to the guy who knows the most about it. You know, you look over and say, well, what do you think we should do? So the best teams, the importance of any individual is less apparent.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm writing all of this down too because I think this we're is
1: covering. golden. I know we're covering a lot. We're going over a lot. I, we? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, we're covering a lot. It's awesome. I'm I'm just I'm finding so much value um, in what you're saying and especially how you word it too. Um it, it definitely clicks for me and I'm just I'm really excited for other people to listen in on this too. Um wow. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, so all right, back to the questions. Um What do you think, so obviously you've experienced a tremendous amount of success in your career, but also there's been something that has set you apart from other SEALs. What do you think, if you had to kind of narrow it down, um, made you different and progress so quickly throughout your um, career as a SEAL?
1: Okay, so first of all, I did not progress quickly. I I progressed just pretty much normal. Some people... And some people in the military actually progress quicker and they, they pick them out. It um, doesn't happen that often. But so I, I progress normal. And what I would tell you is this looking back, um, I didn't learn even what this topic meant until after I got out, believe it or not, four years ago. But I think it is the key to a leader's success. And ultimately, it was the key to my success as far as I went.
2: Mm-hmm. And that
1: is one, I had emotional intelligence. I've seen some leaders and they're still progressing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mean, there's some leaders I see progressing, but they're men. So, so I, I guess what I'm saying is as I progressed, I had what's called followership. In other words, I had people who, who I had a guy one time saying, man, I, you know, this was an older guy who was enlisted. He was older than me, more experienced than me. I was his boss. And he said, when I was leaving that command, he said, you know what, Scotty?' He goes, I really liked working for you. And And that's probably the best thing I could ever hear from the guy. And what he really meant was I ran the team well. In other words, I let the team run itself most of the time because they were so good. Uh you got to know when to lead. But I had emotional intelligence. And what that means for me is you can feel and understand how you're coming across your team and all the vibes in the organization. It's not always about you that you understand. But you understand how they're taking something, how they're doing something, and you can adjust it's, I, I don't know how to get that. I just had it. Right? My sense is it may be a natural thing versus those who don't have it. And you just have to have the feel for your organization and figure out what it needs, to, how it needs to be led at that moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so if somebody's really figuring out how to be a good leader, I would say learn about emotional intelligence and figure out if you don't have it, how to get it. Okay. Because I think that's the number one way to get followership. And to me, when we talk leadership, there's two different ways you're looked at. You're looked at differently from your boss above you than you are from your team below you. What was more important to me, and it may be because I had emotional intelligence and maybe because I, you know, who knows? I, I don't think I was insecure, but I feel like maybe I had a little insecurity Is you want to know how your people feel about you. Okay. That's called followership. Do they want to follow you? If you're leading them, will they follow you? Okay. Cause there's people in leadership positions all over who really nobody wants to follow. Yet the bosses above them don't realize that they just think they're doing a great job. They're doing a great job because their people are doing a great job despite them. And I, and I would tell you, if you think there's so much in charge, turn around some time and see who's following you. Because it doesn't, it's not how good you are, it's how bad you're not. Rare are you the A leader. More, more often when you're young, you start off as a C. And you start listening to people around you and slowly just through iterations of leading, you become a B and B may be the best you can be slowly. I I, I didn't see that many young a leaders. I don't think I was a young a leader. I think I was probably a B. Okay. Maybe later on. I don't know if I graded myself. There were moments. I thought I was creeping in the a just from some of our actions and the way, and the way I handled things looking back. But I don't want to ever say, because I always saw some really sensational leaders, most of them were older than me. Okay. And it comes through age and experience. But I would tell you the guys that I see, I've seen some guys that are, that are getting up their age right now and they're still in charge of different organizations and they have zero followership. And I would tell you they're almost anti-leaders. They are relatively hated. And it's because they're, they're the F the A through F they're the F they're the tyrants who dictates orders and says, let's go. And if you think you're so much in charge, see who's following you because if people are going to do it if they're, at an, if they're overachievers, they're going to do it because of pride, and you're not going to have their loyalty, but they'll find their way down the chain of command until they find who they're loyal to. And if you have a b- bunch of guys that are tyrants, ultimately they'll be loyal to themselves and the guys around them. And a re- way overachieving team, they're going to refuse to fail, but that's a dangerous thing to have. because you never know what direction they're going off in. So you need that followership. And so you have to have that insight. That insight is really emotional intelligence. So, you know, that's something I think I had. The other thing is this. Um, I had a lot of experience. I had a lot of time doing it. It's much easier to be a good SEAL leader if you're a good SEAL first. And I I believe you can look at that across any organization and spectrum the same way. It's good to know what you're doing before you lead it. Okay. It doesn't mean you tell everybody what to do. It just means you understand that organization and those things very well. Mm-hmm. and uh, that was probably key to me I had a lot more normal <laughs> operational experience than most and then I realized that, and, and because of that it wasn't so much that I knew what I was doing and said I really knew my guys better because I had so much experience I knew exactly who should be able to do what and therefore I was also able to lead them and let them and empower them because I knew exactly how they are because I had so much time with them mm-hmm. versus the guy that comes in doesn't have that, that much experience is more doubtful and he starts dictating And these guys are the A-plus performers being treated like new guys. And so I just watched all these differences of of results from different leaders. To me, I had a lot of time in the game. I had emotional intelligence. And I had personality. Um, And I'm not going to act like I was a great, 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 wonderful guy because I don't really know how I was looked at sometimes. But I will tell you, I enjoyed great relationships with my guys. And here's what I really mean by that. It's much easier for people to want to follow you if you're likable. You know, because what you want is to have influence and, and and respect from them. And so you can get that. But if you're not likable, it's much harder. I got along with my people. I got along and I talked to them. And the last thing is, even when I was in Afghanistan, I, is we have what's called walk the battlefield. Um, it's a term that I heard from the Army. But I would have a two-star general show up and I was a Navy captain. And he'd look at me and say, what mission are we going on? He, he would go out on a combat mission with my guys. So would I. When you do that, what your boys say is, and you know, th- the boys are 30 to 4- 35 years old. I was 45. He was 50. What the boys say is afterwards they say, wow, the boss is willing to put himself in harm's way just like us. So they already respect that. Two, they realize that the boss understands what they're going through every night. And three, they know that he can convey and support and, and provide better equipment and better technology and better support because he understands that. So they level respect explodes when when the boss goes out and understands what people are doing. When the boss stays in his office all the time, they just look at him as the boss. They lose any kind of interest in him because he's not interested in them. And even if he's a likable guy, they just kind of write him off. And they just call him the boss. Yeah, that's the boss, whatever. Otherwise there's personal attachment. It develops loyalty and trust. And those are the two things. If you can remember at all, in this talk, the two things that propel, a high-performance team is when you have loyalty and trust throughout the organization. Okay.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um, so, my next question.
1: Yeah, you're not going to be able to sleep tonight, are you?
0: No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, so many ideas are running through my head right now. Everything you're saying, I'm like, oh my god, that's so true. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of these past leaders that I've had the ones that I have been so loyal to and everything that I've done, you know, cause I grew up in athletics saying like, I want to play well for them. It's because they have done certain <laughs> things um, that you're talking about. And the ones that i you know, have performed despite them, it's because they fail to do um, a lot of these things that you're talking about.
1: Totally. So let me give you an example. Okay. It involves Rachel. Mm-hmm. Okay. When Rachel was born, she was born in the U S And we got stationed in Germany about two weeks later. So I went over to Germany and I worked for a boss for about army general, great guys, like your baseball coach, always personable. Got to know me the very first, you know, called me by my first name all the time and call me, Hey, Lieutenant Commander Moore. Sometimes he would when he was, even when he was joking, Lieutenant Commander, get over here. You're going to go work out with me. Let's go. And, uh, but otherwise, even when he wanted to know something about, we, we, we had the entire continent of Africa responsible. And then we weren't going to war. We were doing all kinds of stuff, rescuing people, you name it. But he um, came over to the house one day, and, he, and Rachel was probably about two months old, and I introduced him to Rachel. And he was getting ready to leave. He was almost done with his job there in Germany. New guy was coming in. He was on his two-year rotation, okay, just like I was. But I'd been there for about four months. So I stayed there for about another year and a half. And then I went to another job there in Germany for two more years. So I didn't go back to the States for about four more years. And he had met Rachel for about 30 minutes. Okay. And he knew my wife and he knew my wife's dad. And so I go back to the States and I'm working, I go check in with him. I'm working for him again. Great guy. He's now a two-star general. I'm now a Navy. It's called commander. And the first thing he says is he asked me, because my, my wife's dad had cancer at the time. He goes, how's your, how's your, how's Molly's dad doing? like four and a half years later, I looked at him and I said, well, he's doing good. The fact that he remember that, and then he said, how's old Rachel? Now, he had seen Rachel for probably 10 minutes. Okay?
0: Yeah. Well.
1: But so here's what I'm thinking. First of all, I knew him, I liked him, and this kind of just kept on, this solidified my impression of him, which was, this guy just has it, he totally cares about me. If he didn't care about me, how the hell would he care enough to memorize her name? Because I would forget it unless I really cared, Mm
2: -hmm. And so,
1: and so I I thought to myself, I love this guy. I'm going to do anything for him. He had my loyalty. Okay. And that's just like you talk about coaches. You didn't like or coaches you cared about. You did that because they totally cared about you and they made you a better person. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And when somebody took an interest in you, same with me and my coaches, you know, even if it was hard and sometimes you realize that you didn't want to let them down. And so I had a leader like that in the military in Afghanistan, a two-star general who's pretty well known. Retired now, but he was always working harder than us. And so when he'd show up, most of the time he was in Iraq. When he'd show up, he you know he'd say, "Let's go, let's follow me." Now, he wasn't physically going out. He went out many times, but he wasn't really physically leading it. He was leading the planning of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so none of us, you know, we we were you know late night, you know, long days and stuff. You know, a lot of times in in plans and stuff, and but you didn't even want to want to complain because you knew that he was act, actually spending longer time awake than you were, and so he was more committed than you. And the reason why is because he leads from the front. And so the best leaders lead all the time. It doesn't mean they're dominant. Follow me. It just means they're always leading. Mm -hmm. And so, and I would tell you, he was a natural leader. No doubt in my mind, he was a natural leader, but you can pick up tidbits of this and try doing it. And all these little things I've talked about will make you a better leader. Right. Even if you're not a natural leader, and slowly you will become better across the board. Even if you try a little bit of, you know, everyone has their own different peculiarities.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so everyone has their own leadership DNA and what they can squeeze into that DNA chip. And, um, and some people, their DNA chip is completely awesome. Other people have a blank DNA chip. They can't lead at all. Mm-hmm. I still believe that everybody can learn certain peculiarities that they can change and do, and it will, it will make everyone a better leader. And the truth of it is, is this, it's kind of like public speaking. A leadership is. In other words, what I'm saying is, I don't know a soul who started off in public speaking or did her first speech in school where they weren't nervous and scared to death.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I don't know anybody that ever got up and spoke and, and nailed it. Everyone, I I, mean, I remember in high school or college where I would just flop. And over the years, I had to speak so many times that after a while, I realized I can speak to anybody. But part of that was because I spoke to some really, really, really um, intimidating generals
2: uh-huh. who would
1: eat me alive. Okay. And then pretty soon I just walk in there. One guy asked me how you can do that. I go, I'm so used to it, man. They can, they can give me a, it can be like a dragon with a flamethrower. And I won't even, I go, I'll just, I'll walk away unscathed. Cause I'm so used to it. Mm-hmm. And so what's funny is I had a girl like that in my headquarters that was working for me, an intel officer. And she briefed me at night in Afghanistan and her briefings were relatively incomplete. Every time I asked her a question about the enemy that she's briefing, she'd have to say, I'll look I'll, I don't know. sir, I'll find out. And finally I go, listen, I'm tired of that answer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I need you to start thinking before the brief and digging into what you think I'm going to ask you. And I kept asking her and she got better and better. And pretty soon she left after six months, she rotated out of there. And I said, do you have anything to say? And she goes, yes, sir. Thank you for for the pressure. You And I, I was trying to see if she was, you know, being thankful or actually being, you know, telling me how much she hated working for me. And she goes, I can tell you right now that I feel much more comfortable briefing anybody because of the, pressure that you put upon me in my briefings because you have made me able to handle it and realize you know mm-hmm. to do my best and the other thing I told her was when you step up to the plate and you're giving a speech even if, even if you're a beginner you need to tell yourself I'm going to give the best brief I've ever given or the best speech I've ever given and I and, and watch yourself succeed or fail but, but that's what pressure will do it'll make you better pretty soon what, what used to be pressure will be routine but what I mean by that, I said, it's like public speaking. the same thing with leading. So many people are intimidated by leading. I've seen all these beginners. And I used to have to coach all these young officers. A lot of guys just go away. They owe five years. And at the end of that, they go away because they're not having fun. They And they really never accepted the pressure. And I and I look at these cats. And I'm sitting there thinking, what kind of upbringing did you have? Was it was it team sports? Why why did, why did the pressure not – why did that pressure overwhelm you? Pressure should have been just pressure, and that's all.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: And – so that's what I talk about. Team sports, pressure as a youth, adversity, it builds stronger people, and pretty soon you can, un- you can handle anything. The so leading is kind of that. The more you do it, if you just keep doing it, it's a Nike commercial, Nike slogan, just do it, just lead, just do it. You eventually get used to it. Even if your team looks at you like you're wacky, you will start adjusting. You just can't give up. That's the number one step in becoming good leaders. Accept the role and just keep trying. And, and have an open mind and understand how your team perceives you, which is the emotional intelligence. And slowly it'll work out. Everyone's different.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely not getting any sleep tonight. That is for sure. Um, all right. So what if, um, what were some of the hardest lessons that you learned in your leadership roles? You know, was there something that happened where you were like, Oh, crap. I really need to make a change here. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'll tell you a couple things. Sometimes, um, uh, one of my bosses one time asked me if I ever fired a friend. Okay. Mm
2: -hmm. And I
1: said, yes. And, um, but I was forced to fire him because I was trying to cover him up a little bit and I had to put it, fill out a report for him. My bosses knew he was inadequate and they looked at me and said, write the real report. I kind of smiled, walked away. I walked up to the guy and he's a friend of mine. I said, listen, there's no hiding that your performance has been pretty poor and I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to tell him that. And they've already told me to tell him that. And He looked at me like it was my fault. Mm. And I said, okay, here's the deal. I go, you know, cause I've been friends with you forever and I even tried to walk in there and cover you. But if you really don't accept the personal responsibility for this and look in the mirror, then go ahead and blame it on me, whatever you need to do. And he did, he did. And we became non-friends and the thing about it is I didn't really care because at that point I was mature enough to say, okay, Sometimes it happens. Um, but the other thing is this. And so sometimes you've got to call it out. If you're in charge, it's not always always pretty. I don't know if it gets any easier to fire people. I think it does, actually. Um, and generally, people fire themselves. As long as you're clear about what success is and satisfactory performance and keep people up to date, uh, you know, up to speed on how you, how they're performing, then it's really not a big deal. It just kind of happens and it's expected. But the other thing is, Sometimes you just got to pull people out. I I have mentored so many guys and tried and gals and made them better and made them become better at whatever level they're going to get. And I've mentored a lot of different leaders and critiqued them on different things and slowly gotten better performance over the years. And I have been mentored big time and changed by bosses. And sometimes it wasn't pretty. I've had bosses hammer me even mid-level my career. I had a guy look at me and say, "Scott, the system doesn't like those who don't like the system."
2: Mm. Okay. Yeah.
1: And think about that because the military has a big system, but so does every corporation. Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: And I want to tell you generally, those who really progress in corporate world or in the military world to highest levels, they're not always the best leaders. Some of them are. Some of them get progress because they're fantastic leaders. Some of them don't. But the one thing that they all have is that in them, as they all have ownership of the system because none of those corporations or even the military is going to promote anybody that's anti-system okay mm-hmm. um and that's just a fact and so if you hate the system either get on board with the system stop fighting it if you can't beat it join it i'm not saying start drinking the kool-aid maybe work within the system instead of outside the system learn how to work within the system and get to where you get and make your same point and that's kind of what i ended up doing um and realize I didn't go to the highest levels of the Navy. And that may be exactly still why I got pretty far though. And because of that quote to me, I think it was meant to basically help me. And it did. And, Mm -hmm. and I would tell you that, um, but the other thing is, is there's a point where no matter how hard you try, you're going to have to cut someone free in the seals. We have leaders that are in charge of people's lives. Yeah. And what made me, and I have urgencies because we have a timeline where we're sending guys overseas. And the reason I had to deploy, the reason I had to, you know, I had to cut away a guy was because I was getting ready to deploy him overseas, and I didn't feel good telling his guy his guy's parents, "Your your your son is led by the best I have," which would have been a lie because this guy was not good. And I was trying to make him better. And finally, I ran out of time, so I fired him. But I knew by then that was my job. But later on, when I was in charge of a bigger command, I had another officer who I just didn't think was that good, but I kept him. And in the end, I ended up taking over a mission that he was supposed to run because I didn't trust him. And the truth of it is, I would not have done that if I'd done my job and realized I didn't trust this guy. I knew when I didn't trust him, I should have relieved him. And so there's a point where you, you have enough information, it's time to cut somebody away. Because I believe without a doubt that leadership solves or creates most issues. And in an organization, the more, the more senior I got in the Navy, the more I realized if you hit the leadership of an organization first at all levels, generally you're doing the, you're doing the most important part to make that organization thrive. You're putting good leaders in front of people. Here's the, here's the counter to that, which I experienced as well. I, I've also worked, been in an organization where I had a very bad leader just above me. And I had 30 guys below me that that this guy was in charge of. I was his deputy and they thought he was horrible. I tended to agree and I tended to work both sides. Like I worked relationship with him and I really represented him to the guys. So they, you know, I had a great relationship with the guys, but they hated him. But what I realized the way they thought about it was this 30 guys thought, okay, this guy is our, our commanding, our, our squadron. He's our team leader. And he is absolutely one of the worst leaders we've ever seen. So first of all, they didn't respect him at all. But they also felt that the organization above him absolutely knew how bad he was. And therefore, it affected their, their definition, how they defined the culture. So if you were to ask, hey, did that organization really care about them? They would say, no, they put this idiot in charge of us. Okay? So they, do not, they did not believe that the organization cared for them. So loyalty, they were good Navy first, SEAL second. So they had loyalty to the big big Navy and big SEALs. But were they loyal to that organization led by him? They certainly weren't loyal to him. Okay? And part of that, in fact, in fact, it would be how they would define the culture. And then the guy right after that was a great, great leader who inspired loyalty. And they would do anything for him. And so that's when I really started seeing these lessons learned. Okay? And so... But bottom line is this: the organization should should have never put that guy in charge, or should have never kept him in charge. Because not only did it impact you—you it, know, this was a bunch of overperformers, so they were going to perform no matter what. Mm-hmm. More importantly, it impacted what they thought. It it, it it impacted negatively upon the culture. And so, and what I did over the years, I stored all that. I still made a few mistakes, like not getting rid of a guy. But generally, I certainly still tried to make sure that I, that, that I acted on the lessons I had learned.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think I'm
1: going to probably have to roll here in about a little, 10 minutes or less. So. Okay.
0: Got it. All right. Let me um, – I started skipping a couple questions just for timeliness sake. Yep. And your answers are – I I definitely underestimated your thoroughness with answers because some people, you ask them questions, and they just kind of keep it short. But um, – wow, yeah, I really appreciate your thoroughness. So some of these questions you pretty much have already answered. Um, right, right. Yeah, which I really appreciate. Um, so overall, what do you think were your greatest accomplishments in your career? Which I know, like, you, greatest, know,
1: you not- here, Here's my greatest accomplishment. My, my greatest com- accomplishment is after I recognized its value, I became a coach and mentor to so many other guys below me as far as leadership. And I've had guys that have actually got out. I had a guy who actually got out. He's one of the top guys in the business world right now. And he said to me the other day, he said, you're the only guy who ever really emphasized to me to lead better. And he was one of my leaders. He okay. goes, you know, we take it for granted. In the, in the military, we think it's full of coaches and mentors and leaders. No, we just think lead. Get going. Go. I coached it. I would walk up to him and say, listen, you know, and I pull, pull guys together at lunch, my six or eight leaders, and I'd tell them, hey, you're in the best job of your life. You're, you are leading and responsible for the lives of 30 guys. I go, you're never going to have that the rest of your life. If you go the business world or whatever, or you're going doctor or a lawyer or, or anything, no one's going to give you 30 people's lives to be responsible for, before, right? I go, embrace it. Carpet diem, seize the day. And I go, and you should wake up in the morning and realize, today I have to lead as good as I can lead and become a better, and I said, you need to become a, and I'm the guy who would look, look at him and say, hey, you need to become a better leader every day. No, And, and, and so, show me, here's the key to all that.
2: Mm-hmm. I had
1: great guys that I worked for over the years, and what I learned from them without them, no one ever told this to me. It's what I would, it's what I would put in words. It's real simple. You lead like you wish you were led. Okay. Okay, lead like you wish were led. Everybody wants to be led with respect, courtesy, Everyone wants to become relevant. They may not say they want to be challenged, but challenging makes them better and all that. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, when you do the opposite, you're going to reap what you sow. And so, but that's my greatest accomplishment is over the years, I started recognizing the value of leadership. I started realizing that I was getting pretty good at it. And so I started exporting it, teaching my guys and at all different levels, including listed guys. And guys. And part of that includes allowing them handing stuff off to them and just enjoying their journey Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: tell them when they come off the battlefield, for example, on a combat mission, amazing job. Walking up to the guy who was a team leader, enlisted guy and say, amazing job. And knowing for a fact that the three commanding officers before you never walked up to that guy and said that Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: should have, which is amazing. You know, and knowing that this guy is a friend and he's a friend first and still second. And everyone has emotions, and don't you think he felt value? He felt, don't you think that would mean something? To him? You walk up and say, "Hey, I just think he did a not fantastic job tonight," and then he just walk off, and he all of a sudden just says, "Wow, man, thanks, boss." You know,
2: mm-hmm. and, and
1: he, you know, he's not thinking that because he's around a bunch of other tough seals, and nobody thanks each other, and they just say, "Hey, good job, buddy," right? Mm-hmm. But instead, so really put putting importance into coaching and mentoring people below you. Because, you know, the other thing I'll tell you is this. I realize we're getting really deep, and this is more than you, than you ever asked for. <laughs> no, I so love in one it. Of early, in one of my earlier SIL teams, I had a guy who used to, he was a boss of mine. He was a punisher, man. He was the, the commanding officer, the good guy, the executive officer, the bad guy. He's the guy that keeps everyone in discipline, squared away, you know, haircuts, uniforms, facilities, mm-hmm. everything. And then he moves himself up to the commanding officer. This guy was a great naval officer, a great role model, always fit, always there. One day he walks up to me and says, Scott, we got two things in common. And he wasn't smiling. He goes, what is it? And I was cocky as hell back then. I go, sir, we're both good looking. He goes, yeah. no. He goes, N-. He goes, we have three things in common. I said, we're, bo- we're both good looking. He said, so we have three things in common. And I go, and he goes, what's the other two? And I go, <laughs> we both need a haircut. He goes, right. What's the other one? I go, we're both going to go get one today. He goes, right. And he walks off. And he said it very gruffly, right? And, you know, just to make his point, right? Uh-huh. Kind of a hard ass, but in a way it was an act, but I still respected him. And years later, or no, not even that far later, you're know, you looking around at different people as you're coming up the ranks of any organization. And you have these bosses. And I would tell you that I tell people when I coach a lot of leaders, when I give a leadership speech is your role matters. You may not think that you're a role model, but people are watching you and your role and they're trying to figure out what they think of the organization and themselves in the organization. And here's what I said when I, when I left that command, I remember seeing that guy and I said to myself, I want to be my version of him. Okay. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so I, and when I retired, I blamed him for me, for me staying in 30 years and both started laughing. I go, because I realized, because he stayed in for 30 years and I realized Watching him, that being in this organization is a really cool career, because look how far he's gone, and look how much I respect him. Mm-hmm. And so, if you want people to stick around and want to be there, believe it or not, they're watching how you perform and how you act and how you. And if you're having a bad day or a bad time all the time, what, do you mean, what makes you think they're gonna? That's gonna fire them up, right?
0: Yeah. So. so so now that you've retired as rear admiral, do you miss do you miss that part of your career, or um, are you ready for this chapter? I know you've been retired for a couple of years now. Um,
1: yeah, I've been retired for four years now, and uh, so my challenge is um, getting back to things that I that I put on hold, such as mountaineering,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, and family stuff. And uh, yeah, you for me, obviously, our purpose was pretty significant, so it's hard to match that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, anyone who says you miss it, you do. Um, and even at the higher levels where you're not, where you're not actually doing the off, but you're actually leading it and planning it and directing it. You certainly miss that. Um, and then slowly you just get over it. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's really no shortcut. I think, and, and some people probably have a hard time getting over it. I think, who knows? I think there's a point where you recognize you had a really good ride and you just kind of, walk away I think it may be the same thing for a lot of different people a lot of different deals is uh from athletes to businessmen to everything is you just kind of have to accept it but yeah you miss it do you wish you were still doing it I don't know about that because sometimes you just get over it right I mean you know for us it's a lot of time away and not every role you're going to be in is you know it doesn't have to be fun to be fun but when it's absolutely not fun and you don't want to do it that's when you start thinking why am I still here
2: yeah
1: and um I think they say everyone's gonna know when it's time to to leave, right? You're gonna know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, do I miss it? Sure. What you miss is the purpose and the teammates. Okay. And I see a lot of my former teammates around. And I think all of us sit there and think, We feel sorry for everyone else who never did what we did. That's what we I think most of us feel that way.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: like like people say thank you for your service all the time and I and I had a buddy of mine say, I'm so weird. I said, Why? Because because I had such a blast doing everything. And people are thanking me for that. And they don't realize that I was more selfish than they realize I did it for me. <laughs> and uh, I would totally agree with that. Actually. Yeah. There's a side of it. We're serving our country. We understand that. So, but we actually believe if anyone should go serve their country, it's us. It's a weird, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of hard to understand, but if anyone deserves to fight for our country, it's us. And, and that's how I think some of, most of us really feel like I hope I get to go on this. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, when the, you know, when I was overseas for many, many years, I worked, I I, I sent guys on targets. I went with them on targets. And I would tell you right now, that was the happiest, probably the most fulfilled I've ever been
2: mm-hmm. Okay,
1: in the military. And that's the, that's the happiest my guys ever were, is when we were actually doing it, even though we lost some of our best teammates. We didn't lose many, but we, they were key teammates and friends. We lost them. Their families lost them. And even those guys, before they were lost, they were, they were probably doing that. They were probably as happy as they'd ever been. They were in operator heaven. And so, yeah, you miss it, but you get over it and drive on.
0: Okay. What, <laughs> um, what causes are you passionate about right now? In this stage of
1: experience? So uh, I'm into uh, passing on the leadership lessons that I learned to people who actually can use them. A lot of organizations, you know, the normal world doesn't really have the leadership laboratory set up that I particularly and that the military and special forces and special operations has and the pressure and all that. And so it's a leadership laboratory that you can learn so much to apply to every other facet of life in every organization. So I'm pretty passionate when I'm when I'm asked to come help. You know, I have a company that we actually do a lot of business consulting in the U.S., couple of ski areas in three or four different companies. And um, and we go in and try to impact cultures and we impact leaders who really have never learned lessons of leadership, but they're put in leadership positions.
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: And we try to and we try to do the cliff notes, right? Okay, it took me twenty years to learn this. It's gonna take you a half hour. I'm gonna mm-hmm. tell you these things. And I'll tell you something else, most people don't you know, there are a lot of books on leadership and I'm one of those guys who never finishes a leadership book. A lot, I've heard and that's not a create that's not an original quote. I've heard that from some of my senior leaders because I don't learn much from leadership books. I learn from experience, and that's what most guy, people will learn from. And so we like to go out passionately and give that experience to people who can use it, right? We do it for a business, so it's really for, for financial purposes, a profitable business, mm-hmm. which is, to me, kind of a weird thing since I was in the military for 30 years and wasn't trying to make a profit. But what else I'm passionate about is, is uh, you know, having a family that, feels, that that is happy in life, doing whatever they're passionate about, which is Rachel and Sarah and Thomas mm-hmm. and Molly. And, and the last thing is this. I'm really heavily into um, – I don't think life's about material possessions. I think it's about experiences. And my experiences to me are in the highest parts of the world. So mm-hmm. I like going to big mountains, climbing big mountains, and climbing rock mountain faces. So, um, And, I, and I, put some, I did some of that when I was in the SEALs. I did it before I was in the SEALs. I did some of it while I was in the SEALs, I'm trying to do more of it now. So, And the other thing is helping some of these people who need help, especially like kids of SEALs. Uh right, Um, just to kind of get to, you know, and it actually helps some SEALs, so I'm the chairman of a foundation called SEAL Kids, where we help a lot of SEALs kids that are having learning problems in school, anxiety, whatever, they could be normal kids, just good kids having their ADD or, or worse, autistic, dyslexic, whatever, normal childhood problems in every family, and we try to help SEALs kids, so the SEAL himself going overseas has less problems to think about.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And um, that's what Rachel sings for, right? If there's a SEALs Kids um, event in New York City, right?
1: Yeah, that was actually the Navy SEAL Foundation. Oh, okay. Which, um, yeah, that's a different foundation, but they're the big big monster foundation. They support SEAL Kids Foundation, but yeah, she goes, so they're awesome. Navy SEAL Foundation, yeah.
0: Navy SEAL Foundation, awesome. All right, so last question, wrap it up, because I know you have to go. Um, It's kind of a random, funny question, but if you were a drink... What would you be and why?
1: Yeah, what I was going to say is, um, I'd call it the solution.
0: The solution. <laughs> awesome.
1: Yeah, and and the, and the, and the <laughs> I thought about that a really. little.
0: Why you? But want- listen,
1: but listen, but this is really complex, and the solution is this. I had a guy that died. He was one of my best guys ever, and I called him the solution before that, which was so. The, the older I got, the more I'd be around the Army. And the SEALs are the most undisciplined-looking guys in the military. We'll have hats, we'll be h- halfway on, long hair, neat shades, whatever. And, and we think what, you know, most guys think what matters is how good we are on our mission. The Army, which really is, you know, much, much more people, especially in special operations, four, four out of five guys are in the Army. Helicopters, Rangers, Green Berets, Delta. And they'd be around us and think that we're a bunch of cowboy slobs. And we look at them and say, I don't, this is going up. I probably agreed with my guys. I don't care. I'm better than you on the target. But sooner or later, I was one of the older guys marketing ourselves to my bosses, and they were looking at me going, Your guys are a bunch of slobs. And I had to represent my guys, and pretty soon I try to clean my guys up. And so slowly we get used to it. Slowly, seals get in the, in the game and start looking better. But a guy like this, where one of my senior guys, he was a guy that just got it. I tell him, hey, listen, I need you to clean the boys up, make them look at le- least presentable for this, okay? Put them all in the same uniform. And these were adult boys. I, mean, I said, boys, they're adult men, and we're just trying to play the game. You're not going to change them that much. They didn't come in to be the strict military guy. They came in to be the the solution on on target. And so, but this guy was the solution because because after a while, I realized I didn't even have to go tell him. Every time I saw him and his team, they were looking presentable because they knew the importance of that, or they were out in the field looking like a bunch of you know warriors. Mm-hmm. And and just as, as you know, just as unshaved or whatever else, out in the field didn't matter. And but and they were effective as hell. But in garrison, walking around in front of a bunch of people, this guy had them all squared away. And and he kind of grew up under me, and I used to lecture him about this. And pretty soon I realized he just got it. He picked it up, and he was the solution. That was his nickname. And That's then funny. he got killed on a, and then he died on the parachute jump, and it was horrible. And then another guy was just like him. And, I, and he's still around. He's one of the top enlisted leaders. And I call him solution two. Now, when I say the solution, I'm actually not just talking about that. I'm talking about if you drink that drink, okay, what do I think it's really full of? It's full of challenge and adversity, and it, and it, and it drives you into the hard way, not the easy way. So be careful about drinking it if you're in a bar because you're going to go into some harder situations. You're going to it's going to – that, that drink is going to force you to go into some teams where you're going to get yelled at where people are going to tell you you're not good enough, and pretty soon they're going to say, hey, you screwed that up. And 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 it's going to be just like that. And pretty soon, you're going to embrace it. And it doesn't have to be fun to be fun, but you're going to figure out that adversity and challenge makes you better at everything. And when you, and when you shy away and drink the easy way out drink, you're going to be flatlining in, in improvement. You won't ever get better at anything. You've got to embrace challenge and adversity by drinking the solution which forces you to go after it and you get better. How do you like that answer?
0: That is the most unique answer I've ever heard because in my mind, I was like, Oh, I think I'd be an Arnold Palmer. (laughs) I think some people always go for like an alcoholic drink or something. I'm like the solution in my mind. I'm like, I wonder what that, what's in the solution.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I can't (laughs) wait to see that. I can't wait to see that written up.
0: Oh my God. That's going to be great. I think I'm going to make a quote saying, "You will never believe the drink that Admiral Moore is." Yeah, people are going to get a kick out of that. Yeah. Thank
1: and you. the other one, the third, the what? third part of the solution, you can look break it down in three different ways, right? I said yeah. first of all was that guy's performance.
2: Uh-huh. The second
1: one was it'll drive you towards adversity and challenge. The third thing is this: I talked about leadership being this, being the either solves or creates every situation. You drink the solution, and it's making you a better leader to be the solver, the problem solver of every situation. Because I believe leadership is the number one thing that will do that. And the other thing about leadership is this. It doesn't mean that you're in charge. Leadership comes from all parts of the team. Anybody can take charge. You know, the best leadership is is, is situational leadership, not positional leadership. Situational leadership is someone realizes, time for me to take charge here, and they do it. Mm -hmm. And they're not even in charge of the team. And when you have a team that people do that, they have freedom to do that. You are as good as you're going to be. And that came from the positional leadership person telling people, if you see the moment to take charge, you do it. Don't wait for us to tell you. That is the solution.
0: And that's Uh, pretty empowering. (laughs) That's an awesome drink. That's an awesome drink. Um, I'm going to go to a bar one day and ask for the solution. The
1: solution. They're they're just going to stare at you. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. And then and then I'll go on this um rant telling them about it is and they're just going to be like okay do you want a shot or not? <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, that's awesome though. No, but like I love that it's that you said that about situational leadership because that's why I see that in my own role with this company is it's such an empowering thing to be told and know that your positional leaders believe that. Um, we call it horizontal leadership here. Um, where no one is above anyone and whoever wants to take yeah the
1: problem is is when you don't have that empowerment right
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you do i'm telling you then you know it doesn't mean you're going to be automatically good but it certainly means you have potential to be good yeah Yeah. all right shelby listen i hope that helps you and uh no this
0: give me is some awesome. feedback
1: Thank give you. me some feedback for what you got out of it sometime okay
0: oh yeah i mean that's gonna be a book so <laughs> i hope you're ready right
1: yeah i expect this is going to take you a couple of days to digest
0: yeah, it definitely will. I'm really excited for other people to hear about it too. I'm actually about to go in with my boss right now and kind of give her some notes, um, from this conversation. Uh, it's you, you, you dropped so much knowledge. It gave so much value in this combo. I think more than any other, um, any other interview style that I've ever listened to. Um, yeah. Great.
1: So, you know, so, I, so I have a company, but I also speak for a speaker's bureau and I go over this whole thing. I actually put this in, that's why I was using the flow. I mean, I covered a lot more today, but ultimately I speak for a company called Leading Authorities.
0: Leading Authorities, okay.
1: okay. Yeah, and I give that speech twice a month, and, uh, and I shape it to the people I'm